Welcome to the Thriller Fiction Podcast, your source for gripping and twisty stories in a serialized format. And now, here's your host, Jim Heskett. Something is clearly working because you're still here. What up, friend? I am Jim Heskett, and you are you. You're the man or the woman who is currently walking his or her dog. You're uh, mowing your lawn. You are taking your kid to soccer practice. You are working in your garden. You are running at the treadmill. Um, Who knows? You could be doing literally anything right now. Well, I mean, that's not true because you have to be doing something that requires you to be listening to this. So that does limit the things you could be doing. Anyway, I'm Jim Heskett, and this is the Thriller Fiction Podcast, and I'm super stoked for you to be here because today we're going to be reading the second chapter of Reagan's Ashes. Hopefully you liked it last week, and since it's been a few days, let's recap a little bit so you know what's going on. Last week we read chapter one, which was two separate scenes. I hope you caught that. And in the second scene, there was a little bit of an Easter egg that only my most hardcore fans will probably be able to figure out, that there was a character in that scene who appears in several of the Micah Reed books. Did you catch that? Hmm, maybe go back and listen to it again. I didn't name him. I just described a very particular thing about his physiology. I gave a physical description of him. That is the only way that you could pick it out. This is like super hidden Easter egg kind of stuff. Um, Anyway, so in the chapter, we met Reagan Darby, her boyfriend Spoon, and her cousin Dalton. And Reagan was at her father's funeral uh, where she had kind of a breakdown. She was very upset about her dad dying and Spoon comforted her. And then her stepmother brought her her father's will, which asked that Reagan take his ashes into Rocky Mountain National Park to spread them. And Reagan isn't sure if she can do that. And then in chapter two, which we're about to hear in just a few seconds, we're going to be picking up the story a few hours later when Reagan and Spoon are back at her house or her her um, her dad and stepmother's house. And so let's go ahead and turn things over to Kate Fisher. If you enjoy this story, go to jimheskett.com forward slash books and then page through until you find it. And I think you will really dig it if, uh, if uh, intense mysteries are your thing. Mysteries with a ticking clock and a race against time are your thing, especially if you like wilderness survival because a big chunk of this book takes place inside Rocky Mountain National Park. You could call it a backpacking thriller, I suppose. Anyway, if that's your thing, check it out. And if you just want to listen, here we go with Chapter 2. Chapter 2. 7 o'clock p.m. Reagan arranged backpacking supplies on her old bed while Spoon rested his surgically repaired knee and flipped through her high school senior yearbook. A Tori Amos song wafted from tinny Bluetooth speakers on the nightstand. Organize, cry, repeat. The Kleenex box followed her around the room like a puppy. Back in Austin, she had an Arcteryx raincoat, a big Agnes down sleeping bag, LED Mammut headlamp, and a nearly new ultralight go-light tent. Here she had her father's dilapidated camping gear and a handful of items she'd left after their last mountain excursion. 
Fortunately, she had her own long underwear and non-cotton layers for the chilly high-altitude nights. What she didn't have were hiking boots that fit. Dad's size 13s were so large they might as well have been clown shoes. Just looking at them, and the possibility of slipping her feet into them, brought more tears to her weary red eyes. Sleeping in his tent, not so bad, but wearing his boots. Somehow that was ground she couldn't cross. She'd arranged items into categories of emergency gear, clothing, food and cooking gear, and hiking gear. Dad's hiking poles were in the worst shape, but beat-up poles were a badge of honor. Shiny new poles meant you were a noob who hadn't put in your miles on the trail. Then there was the urn, shaped like a vase, but made from varnished wood, slippery to the touch like porcelain and about the size of a football. She duct-taped it shut with multiple layers. The prospect of her father's remains spilling inside the backpack stirred the bile in her stomach. Spoon said nothing as she took inventory of what would be her sole possessions over the next four days. He occasionally flicked his eyes toward her, over the top of her yearbook, then quickly retreated. Naturally, he acted as if he didn't want her to go, and he had good reasons. She picked up her father's camp stove and turned it in her hands. He was too young to have a heart attack. Spoon took in a breath, then let it eke out between his lips without saying anything. A few seconds later, he held out the yearbook toward her, his finger pointing to a grainy black-and-white picture of her dressed as Emily Webb in Our Town. I didn't know you did theater. Just freshman and sophomore year, too much trouble remembering all those lines, and they were going to do Greater Tuna the next year, which I've always thought was a racist play. Not for me. She took a break from organizing and withdrew three pill bottles from her suitcase. She opened them all and took one blue pill, one pink pill, and a tiny yellow pill. He stared at her while she did this. The concern in his eyes burrowed into her as she went into the bathroom to fill a cup with water. He propped himself up on the bed, grimacing. Why do you reckon your mum didn't come? She knocked back the pills and washed them down with the sink water, then pumped a blob of lotion into her hands and slathered it on her forearms. Why would she break her streak now? I don't see how she could do that to you. He obviously meant well, but looking for blame wasn't helping. Reagan wasn't mad at her mom for leaving, or for not reaching out when she was going through a rough time after she dropped out of college, or even for not coming to Dad's service. What was the point of being angry at someone else? All roads eventually ended. Spoon sighed, and she saw more hiding behind his eyes, something he didn't want to say. Whatever you're thinking, please tell me. I know there's something wrong. It's just, you're going through so much right now. And this trip, the trip to New Orleans, that's not what I meant. I'm going to call the company I was going to interview for and tell them it's going to have to wait. What will you do instead? I'm going to stay right here in case you need anything. She smiled. That's sweet. I'm not too keen on parading my bad knee around New Orleans anyway. I was referring to the other trip. I'm trying to say, and I would never give you unsolicited advice, but I know that for me, when I'm in times of stress, that it becomes easy for me to think that my way of thinking is absolutely correct, when it's usually not. 
She stood in the doorway of the bathroom and wiped a tear from her eye, but she was also smiling at Spoon's adorable attempt to give her non-advice advice. She sat next to him on the bed and laced her fingers through his. He was warm, and his skin felt dry against her freshly moisturized hands. I know you love me. I do, he said. Baby, I need you to be supportive right now. His mouth dropped open. Oh, I do support you. I'm not saying you can't go, but I don't understand why you have to go out bushwalking right now. Let it sit a few months to have a good think about it, so you can go when you don't have all the rest of this hanging over you. It's the perfect time right now. I don't have a shift at the restaurant until next week. Besides, this is what he wanted. I owe it to him. Maybe I'm not explaining this all very well. He frowned at the brace imprisoning his knee. I understand, she said. You're going to have to trust me that I'll be okay. He forced a smile, and she kissed his cheek. He didn't seem to believe her, but that was okay. He was probably feeling impotent and overwhelmed. She could understand that. I'll be right back, she said, and walked downstairs and into the garage to search for boots. In a cardboard box marked shoes, she unearthed a pair of Merrill boots she hadn't seen since high school. Beige and green, no tears in the fabric and laces that appeared to be sturdy. The problem was the tread on the bottom, nearly worn flat, which meant no grip on slippery surfaces. They would have to suffice. She couldn't afford to stroll into REI and drop a hundred fifty bucks on new boots. Next, she went into the kitchen to hunt for a pocket knife. There wasn't one in the garage gear collection, so she began rifling through the drawers in hope of finding something passable. Newly widowed Anne faced away from her at the kitchen table, glass of wine and bottle in front of her. She didn't bother to look at Reagan. In the back of the junk drawer, Reagan located a rusted Swiss Army knife. Technically, it was hers, because Dad had given it to her when she was old enough to join him on camping trips. She must have left it here after their trip into Rocky Mountain National Park two years back. Too heavy for a backpacking knife, but so were Dad's tent, backpack, and sleeping bag. She had lost all hope of traveling light on the trail, which meant sore knees and an aching back at the end of each day. She reminded herself to hunt around for a golf ball later, one she could rub against the bottom of her feet each night to prevent foot cramps. Sticking the knife in her pocket, she considered saying something to Anne, but all of the various comforting phrases she mulled over dried up and vanished on her lips. Anne would only snap at her anyway. They were never more than passing acquaintances, tied together by a man who was no longer their glue. Would Anne stay? Would she go back and be with her own family? Part of Reagan wanted to ask. Part of her thought Anne's future was none of her business. On her way back up the stairs, Reagan decided that Spoon needed his own time to come to grips with the events of the last few days. She glanced at the door, which she'd once covered with posters of festivals she'd always wanted to attend, but never did. Burning Man, Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo. The same doorway she used to stagger through, exhausted after staying up late into the night talking with Dad on the couch in the living room. She would beg him to tell her stories about the girls he dated when he was young, before he met her mother. She would puzzle over each story, wondering what he saw in them or how those girls saw him. She could never do that again. Never again.
She entered the room, and Spoon flipped her a restrained smile, pointing at a picture of her cousin Dalton's yearbook photo. Is he in uni somewhere around Denver? She shrugged. His brother, my cousin Charlie, goes to Regis. Dalton's not the college type. What does he do for work? That's a good question. He used to sell weed, but now that it's legal here, I have no idea. I almost forgot to tell you, he said. I changed our flight. We'll fly back to Austin on Saturday morning. She sat next to him and put a hand on his chest. You're a good guy to look out for me. My mates keep telling me I'm punching above my weight with you. I'm the lucky one. I need to say goodbye to my dad. Do you understand? He nodded. I appreciate that you're concerned, but I need you to believe that I'll be okay. He ran a finger up and down her forearm, which sparked an outbreak of goosebumps along her exposed flesh. I can try. I know you're going to be stuck here without me for a few days, and I feel awful about that. No worries. I'll find something to keep me occupied. Whatever happens, she said, there's just one thing you have to keep in mind. And what's that? Don't trust my stepmom. That's it for this episode of the Thriller Fiction Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and visit jimheskett.com for more info and free thriller books.